morning, everybody. How's everybody this morning? Well, it hadn't been a, been a beautiful uh, weekend so far. Wow. It's like another beautiful day today. Let's uh, open in a word of prayer here, and then we'll get things, get things started here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, I just uh, I, I ask for your blessing upon this day. Father, we just thank you for everything you are, for your grace and your mercy to us, uh, and, and just all the things that we don't deserve. We thank you for the beauty of this weekend, Father, and just uh, the great time that we can have outside, the time we can have in fellowship with, uh, with each other, and we just, uh, we're very thankful for everything that you do for us, and we just ask this in your name, amen. All right, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. We started uh, last week, we, we kind of um, started on, on, on verse 11, uh, and that's kind of where we had to stop last week. We covered verses 7 through 10 of Revelation 20, and we started on verse 11. We started talking about the great white throne judgment uh, and, and, and how there are two judgments, uh, two, two major judgments that, that you hear talked about in Scripture. There are other judgments too. There's judgments of the angels and things like that, and, and we're not necessarily going to probably get into all of that, but uh, I mentioned it, that you know there's the Bema Seat Judgment and there is the Great White Throne Judgment. Um, let me just to kind of open up, I'll read, uh, and I, I believe I read this to you last week, but I just want to read it again to kind of get everybody kind of back to where we were at last week. It says, the judgment of believers is referred to as the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema. And, and the Bema was a... a a Greek word. It was it, it was used for the judgment seat. That like basically, it, like in modern times, if you're going to take somebody to court, you know, you took them to to court. Well, that was kind of the equivalent of of the day. Like Paul, when when people you know kind of opposed him at one point, he was taken to the judgment seat. He was taken to, and that was called the bema. Okay, and so Christians kind of used that word took that from, you know, the, the, the modern usage in the Roman world and took that, that the Bema seat uh, and, and used that as the phrase for the judgment uh, of believers, okay, of Christians. Uh, the, the, the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema, that judgment is, is either referenced or explained in Romans 14.10, 2 Corinthians 5.10, and 1 Corinthians 3.10 through 15. Only believers appear at the Bema seat, and its description is distinct. I want to actually read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So if you want to follow along, you can, or if you want to just listen, uh, you know, you can do that too. Um, but this just gives you kind of a, a, a description of, of Paul talking about this Bema seat uh, judgment. This is for, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. By the grace uh, God has given me, I laid a foundation as wise builders, as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. So Paul is basically, he's talking about his own ministry and how he and really all the apostles laid the foundation for the church. And now we all come, and, and, and you may not have ever thought about it this way, but this is the way the Bible pictures it. Your lifetime as a believer is you building onto the church you know your works the things you do how you live your life 
is you, you know, your chance to build, you know, another layer onto to the building that is the church of Christ, okay? And, and that's what he's talking about here. He, he, you know, laid the foundation as a wise builder. Someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, wide variety, from the priciest to, to you know, basically nothing, you know, straw, you know, if anyone builds with these things, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will, it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what, was, uh, what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So, you know, the, 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 the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat, is a judgment for believers for the works that you've done as a believer. How you've used the gifts that God has given you, how, what you've done with the opportunities that God has given you, how your life, uh, you know, lived both publicly and privately, measures up to, the, you know, the standard of what, how we are to live, okay? And, and as he said there, everyone in this is going to be saved. You know, the, the, the God is going to test your works, and if the works stand, you'll get reward. Even if the works are burned up, he says, you're not going to suffer, you know, eternal, you know, damnation. You'll suffer loss. You won't get as many rewards, you know, and, and, and so, you know, it's a happy judgment, yet it's not completely happy because, you know, many people's works will not hold up necessarily, you know, and, and won't necessarily receive the, wor- the rewards that they could have received, but in the end, Everyone in the Bema seat, judgment will be saved, okay? So it's a judgment of, of the saved, you know, only for recognition, for reward, for, for God saying, well done. Uh, you know, everybody that's saved at least will get, the, you know, that crown, the, the, the one of having been a believer in Jesus Christ. But on top of that, you know, all the other, like, you know, ways that God could, could reward us and say, well done, you, you, you used what I gave you, you used the opportunities I gave you, you lived, you, you know, you tried everything you could to live your life according to, to how I wanted you to live it, you know, well done, okay? So that's what it's about. It, 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 it's the, you know, the Bema Seat judgment is a, is a judgment for rewards. However, the great white throne judgment is a judgment that, that does not involve believers. This is only for the lost, and that's important to understand. There's a judgment for believers only, where everyone is saved, and it's just rewards. And then there's a judgment for unbelievers only, and everyone in that judgment is lost. Okay? And it, it essentially is it's the just verdict against them. All right? It's their day in court. It says that the great white throne judgment, only believers are, only unbelievers are present. And they are judged according to their works. The fact that they are condemned on that basis bears eloquent testimony to what the scriptures have plainly said. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. There is no one who does good, not even one, Romans 3.12. And the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. 
Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9. Even persons who have been counted to be good and noble by their counterparts on earth are in their hearts rebellious against God. Universally unredeemed humanity is at enmity with God. That becomes apparent in the, uh, in the judgment from the books. However, there may be one last hope. A search is made in the book of life for the name of that individual. To be found in the Lamb's book of life affirms that one has been forgiven of all the sins recorded in the book. To be found in the Lamb's book of life is to be guaranteed life on the basis of the work of Christ, rather on the basis of the deeds written in the books, by which no, no flesh can be justified. Those whose names are not found written in the Lamb's book of life are condemned. Remember, that's kind of the last thing we were talking about last week. There's two sets of books. One carries essentially their, their judgment on their works. And, 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 you know, that book will be read out and, you know, guilty as charged, everybody guilty. But like he said, they, you know, they, they might say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, I put my faith in you. Remember Jesus said that. You know, Jesus said, you know, that, that many will say to him, look at everything I did for you, God. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. You know, there, there are people who are fakes, essentially, who, you know, went to church, you know, even, even did certain things, like, you know, did ministry, whatever it may be, but never really put their faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible seems clear on that. And so the book of life is checked. And if their, if their name is not found in the book of life, then... They're, 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 that's it. They're, they're, you know, their works already condemn them, but they can still be saved on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done because all of our works condemn us. None of us are deserving of the grace of God. But when the Lamb's book is checked, the Lamb's book of life and their name is not found there, there's no more hope. And, 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 you know, like I said, the, the, the white throne judgment is only for unbelievers. You know, th this is declaring them guilty. There's, there's two ways they could have been found innocent, either living that perfect life, which, of course, none of us can do, or having put their faith in Christ. And when both of those things are found to be lacking, their, their, their guilt is established, and there's nothing anyone can say anymore at that point. You know, and, and it, it is a final judgment, uh, you know, one, we are deserving, it's a judgment on our works, we are deserving of hell, two, it's a judgment of the fact that, that God made a way, he made a path, that Christ paid for our sins, and they didn't take that path. And, and so it's a final judgment, it, it is the great white throne, uh, and, and we read about it in verse 11, of, of Revelation 20, and I saw a great white throne and him seated on it, you know, and, and that is the beginning of the great white throne judgment. Now, it's interesting, uh, this phrase here that, that, uh, uh, the, that follows it, the earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. Now, what exactly does that mean? Uh, you know, is that just symbolic? Does that literally mean that is the moment where the earth and the heavens are completely gotten rid of and made new? Uh, if that is the case, how does that even work? Like, like, where's everybody else at if there are no earth and heavens anymore? 
you know. Uh, and, and so we're going to kind of get into that a little bit here this morning. But those two people take two approaches. That one is the idea that at, at the presence of Christ, of Christ, of God and you know Christ, the Father and the Son, um, their magnificence is so great. It's as if everything else ceases to exist. They are the entire focus, and all else is done away. And so that is one way that people look at that. That's what they think is, is happening when it says the earth and, 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 and the heavens fled away. It's like at that moment, there's, there, there's nothing else. There's just the Father and the Son, okay? And so that, that is, some people take that as a, a more figurative way. Um, and it certainly could mean that. I mean, we, we actually kind of even use phrases like that, you know, we, we hear people talk about like that. Well, I was talking to that person, it's exist, everything else didn't, didn't exist anymore. People say that when they fall, fall in love, you, you know, it's like the whole world just ceased to exist, you know. And, and so you, you hear that kind of language used at times, so it could very well be that. It, it also could be the, 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 the fact that you know, that is the moment when it, where the earth and the heavens are completely, you know, destroyed, the old earth and heavens, and, you know, God makes everything new again. Uh, hold on to that. We're going to talk about that here in just a little bit. So, uh, you know, how exactly that, that works. Uh, so so we'll, we'll wait till we get into chapter 21 uh, to kind of discuss that. You notice that, that you know, he, he, he goes on to say that the, the earth and the heavens fled from his presence. There was no place for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. And here he's explaining that judgment seat that we, that we just got done talking about. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead. Uh, the dead that were in it, the, the, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Let's just stop right there for a second. One, you notice it is, it's great and small. It, it's, it's, age has no bearing on this. Position has no bearing on this. All of the lost will one day be resurrected. You know, and it doesn't matter if, if they're young, if they're old, it doesn't matter if they're wealthy or if they're poor, it doesn't matter if, if they're powerful, uh, you know, or, or, or if they have no power in life at all. None of that matters. You know, it's the great and the small. It, it, it's everyone who is lost without Christ will be resurrected someday and they will face the judgment seat of Christ. The sea will give up its dead. Now, you might ask, well, wait a minute, you know, people that their bodies have been into the sea, you know, something's eaten them. You know, they've just disintegrated. The, 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 the earth will give up its dead. Death will give up its dead. The, the, our bodies go back to dust. Yes, they do. But that's okay. If God could put Adam together from dust in the beginning, he doesn't, he can do it again. And he can do it to, you know, for, for everybody. It's the same question when it comes to the rapture to, to believers, you know, it. You know, it's, I, I hear people, well, you know, people get all worked up about some of these things. Like, how's God going to bring me back? You know, look, don't worry about it. Let God handle the things of God. You don't worry about those things. You know, I, I mean, I, I've had some interesting conversations through the years. It's like, well, would it be wrong to be cremated? 
You know, how would God put me back together? Well, you're going to be dust anyway, so what's it? it? It doesn't matter. Like, don't let those things, like, like, become a bother for you. That's God's end of thing. That's above your pay grade. God can put you back together. If he can put you together the first time, he can put you together this time. You know, that's God's power. He's allowed to do that. You know, and, and, and what this is a picture of is all the lost dead, whether it's in the sea, whether it's in the land, death gives up what's in it. Hades, with that word Hades, we tend to think of that as like hell. But the thing you have to understand from the ancient world, their concept of Hades was the place the dead go. It was the place of the dead. So he's kind of like, and that's how he's using it here, death gives up all of its people. The, the sea gives up everybody. Death gives up everybody. Hades, the place of the dead. Anywhere you can think of that the dead could be, that they all come back. That's what he's trying to say. They, they all come back. They're all going to be judged. They are going to be resurrected someday, and they're going to stand before the great white throne. They're going to be judged by what's in those books by the, their sin, and by the fact they have not put their faith in Christ. They're going to be judged by those things. You know, and, and that is, it's a final judgment. There's no coming back from that. You know, this is a judgment only of the lost, great and small. Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. That's a terrible verse and a wonderful verse all at once. It's terrible in its final judgment. People who do not accept Christ, that is the ultimate end for them. You know, you notice the emphasis again that their names were not found in the book of life. Because even if you're, you know, even all the sins that you've done, Christ covered them on the cross. If your names are found in his book, if you put your faith in him, then, then you're guaranteed salvation. But if you haven't done that, then there's no hope. You know, and, and it's, a, it's an awful thing that, that, you know, the lake of fire is the second death. We, we, we talked about that. Like the, the first death was the first time they went into the grave or the sea or you know, to the place of the dead, however you want to put it, the first time, that was their first death. But now they are resurrected only to experience their second death. And that is to be thrown into the lake of fire. That really is the equivalent of what we tend to think of as hell. Hades is really not. We, you know, there's, there's several terms, Sheol, uh, Hades, you know, terms that are used in the ancient world I, I, we tend to just think of hell. But what we usually think of uh, as hell is that final destination for the unbeliever, where they will spend eternity. And that, in, in, in this case, is the lake of fire. You know, and, and so they are resurrected only to experience the second death. And anyone who, whose name is not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So it's, it's a stark, you know, horrible verse in a lot of ways because of the amount of people that will face that judgment. It will be a just judgment, 
guaranteed justice because they stand before the only just judge. And the books are examined. There, there won't be any defense argument. You know, you won't stand before God and argue your case to God. I mean, the most you're going to say is like Jesus said, you're going to say, but wait a minute, look at all I did. And Jesus is going to say, depart. Depart. I never knew you. You were never mine. You know, it, it, I mean, sometimes you hear people, oh, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll state my case to God. No, you won't. No, you won't. Stop being so arrogant. Maybe that's the problem in the first place. Nobody's going to talk back to God. So it's a horrible verse. But it's wonderful at the same time. Look how it begins. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. I love that kind of figurative language where he says there's not going to be death anymore. There won't be any death anymore. There's no need for a place of the dead. You know, that, that whole idea of, of you're going to die and where do you go when you die and all that stuff, that's all gone at that point. The second death, the final death, is that spiritual, you know, eternity in the lake of fire. But for all the living, there will never be death again. There's no need for a place of the dead. So it's, it's a, 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 it begins beautifully, but it ends obviously tragically. Now, let's go back to that question of the new heavens and the new earth. Let's, I want to begin by reading chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. And this is probably about all the further we'll get today. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and, and, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will, will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magical arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So it begins chapter 21 with basically, in many ways, explaining the last verses of the previous chapter, you know, of, of what, what happens uh, when, when kind of the earth, the earth and, the, and, and, and the heavens flee, flee away from God and, and its judgment takes place. And he talks about the new heavens and the new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. The Bible is very clear that, that this earth and, and, and things as we know it will one day be done away. 
Now, there, uh, like so many other things that we've seen here, there's, there's two ways that people interpret this. Because God says, I am making all things new, there are many believers who say, well, God is going to take the fallen earth, the fallen creation uh, that was subjected to the fall because of the sin of Adam, God is going to take that and he's going to remake it all. So it won't necessarily be he's just going to all be like, like burn it all up and do away with it and like have us like, you know, I don't know where we'll be. I have no idea. If, if the, you know, if that's what happens, if God burns it all up, we'll somehow be safe and we'll be with him, you know, I, I don't know where that's going to be. Be like a pad out in space where everybody stands. I have no idea. You know, I don't know what that looks like. And God doesn't explain. He doesn't go into any details. You know, it's one of those unanswerable questions to us that makes you go, hmm, wonder what that'll be like. Well, you know, we don't really have a good answer for it. We just have to trust God. He says, hey, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to, you know, bring a new heaven and a new earth. So some people argue, well, you know, we'll still be here, but somehow God is just going to make everything all over again. Others say, no, he's going to literally destroy everything that is here, okay, and then bring a, a brand new one, basically just purge it all. And that is what many verses of Scripture do seem to say. I want to look over at 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. It says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the, to the day of God and the speed of its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with the promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Peter makes it fairly clear how he thinks things are going to happen. He says everything's going to be burned away. That's how I personally view it. I, I just think too many verses in the Bible say that. You know, and, and again, you know, it, that it... it there's much here that's taken figuratively in Revelation and in end time, so it could be that, but I just don't think so. I think there's too many verses that say it will be completely destroyed to just look at like, well, God's just going to, you know, make everything kind of all of a sudden be great again. He does say he'll make everything new, but his way of making everything new seems to be he's going to purge and destroy everything that was there first and then bring a new heaven and a new earth. Peter says it will be by fire, that things will melt away. Again, I don't know where exactly we'll be during this, but we'll be safe, we'll be with God. I, I mean, that's really all we have to be concerned about. Peter doesn't seem concerned. He says God will destroy it all, burn it up, melt it away, and then bring a new heaven and a new earth. God will make it all new, but I think it's most likely that he'll do that by destroying what was here first and then bringing a new one. Now, before we talk about the new heaven and the new earth uh, and, and, and the new holy city, Jerusalem, 
I want you to notice that there's no longer any sea. What does God have against the sea, you might say? I know a lot of you love the sea. So, you know, what, 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 what is this all about? Well, the thing you have to remember is there's a very great difference in the way that modern people see the sea and the ocean and what, how ancient people did. I mean, you know, we have beaches and, you know, people like to go to the shore and lay on the beach and go out in the ocean. They didn't see things quite like that. To, to them, to the ancient world, the sea was a place of mystery and fear and chaos. How many of you ever watched Jaws? Yeah, that was much more how the ancient world was to those people. It's like, what's in there? It's so deep. It's so dangerous to travel on it. You can't see what's in it. You know, it was the place, in the mind of those people, it was a part of, of, of where evil was. This, the sea was really seen as, as, as a place of chaos and evil and, 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 you know, something they didn't understand. And that was a persistent way of looking at things through ancient times for most ancient people. You know, and, and so when the Bible talks about the sea so often, it is using the sea a, a, as that picture of, you know, basically evil and, and darkness and mystery and chaos. And, and so in a very real way, what God is trying to say here is all that darkness will be done away. All that chaos. You know, I, I mean, go the whole way back to the, the, to the beginning verses in the Bible and how darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over it. it yeah, that idea of there being the darkness there, of, of something being there that, that, you know, I would say the earth was without form and void. It was, it, you know, it was a frightening type of sight before God's hand, you know, really brought clarity to it all. That's kind of the, the picture. And, and that's largely what's kind of being said here. That all the things that scared mankind, those dark, deep places, places that I, I just saw a book not long ago, a Christian book called the, the Places That Scare You. You know, the places that scare you, they won't exist anymore. The one that's behind that all will not exist anymore. He will be, spend eternity in, in, in the lake of fire. There won't be any more scary places. Whether literally God will do away with the sea, yeah, I have no idea. But for sure, he will do away with that idea of what the sea represented to ancient people. There will never be fear and chaos and, and, and a, a home for evil ever again. Because that's what the sea meant to them. So that will be done. It's interesting, you know, other pictures that we've seen of heaven, you know, talks about like kind of a sea of glass out in front of, uh, of the throne of God. And so we don't know what that's all going to look like necessarily. But we do know the old order of things, which is what he's about to say here, the way things used to be are all gone now. And it's going to be made new. 
Now, as I've read already in verse 1 of chapter 21, that I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. So God replaces the, the, the heaven and the earth. He, he makes everything new again. It, it's, it's like, you know, we've talked all throughout this that we're heading toward a second Eden. That, that this all has very kind of Edenic, uh, you know, language to it. That, that, you know, God made things perfectly and, and, and we kind of screwed it up. You know, mankind screwed it up, and, and, and you know, now God is, is moving toward making it like that again. And so he makes a new heaven and a new earth, does away with the rest that, you know, had sin, and now makes a new heaven and a new earth in him. Mm-hmm. Sure. That's exactly right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, that's right. We're heading, yeah, that's right. We're heading back to that point. Yep, absolutely. Heading back to kind of like a, a second Eden. You know, uh, before sin brought all the, the, the horrors, you know, with it into, into the human existence. You know, and the Bible talks about how creation groans for the appearing of the sons of God, the children of God, for this day, essentially. Creation longs for that because it was subjected by God to our sins because we were meant to be kind of the highest order of this creation. How could we be if we were sinful and creation was not? So, so God subjected all of creation to, to Adam's sin so Adam could still be over, over, you know, that creation. You know, we couldn't live in a perfect place if we weren't. And, and so, you know, Paul talks about this in Romans, how, you know, that, that, that all of creation groans like, like it's in childbirth, just waiting for that moment where the children of God appear, just like the mother, you know, goes through the agony of childbirth waiting for that moment when the baby appears. That's kind of how all, the Bible says all creation is for, you know, God to make everything new again. So yeah, that's very much the picture. You know, it, it going away from the effects of sin to no more sin and no more effects of sin. But this time it will be the eternal order of things. It will be the way things are for eternity from that point. It's interesting that not only does he say uh, new heaven and new earth and, and no sea, he says, I saw the holy city of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. You know, again, the idea of Jerusalem, you know, and we've seen the contrast even, you know, in the book of Revelation. We've seen Jerusalem spoken of as the holy city, God's place, God's city, the capital city of his earthly kingdom. We've seen that. We've also seen Jerusalem talked about as a vile and wicked place because the people of God sinned against God. So we've seen the contrast that, that you know, God has always seen Jerusalem as, 
as his place, as, 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 as the center essentially of his world, but at the same time, he said, I'll bring judgment upon it because it's filled with people who've rejected me. And it's come to stand for their sin. So you have both of those things in Scripture. But now you see that being made new. You know, John says, I, I, you know, I, I looked and I saw a new Jerusalem. Now, look, this may not mean a whole lot to us. I want you to think what it meant to John. John had been in the old Jerusalem. You know, this meant a lot to John as one of Jesus' disciples. Jerusalem, you know, by, by the time this was written, Jerusalem had already been destroyed by the Romans. I, I want you to think of what it meant to John to have God say, there's going to be a new Jerusalem, a new holy city. I'll bet that was a moment with some tears. Tears of sad, of, of, of gladness. In fact, it's interesting because shortly after that, God says to him, I'm going to wipe away all tears. You know, just pure speculation. It makes me wonder if John wasn't crying at the time. There will never be any need for that anymore. But a new Jerusalem is coming. No longer a place that's been tainted by the sins of mankind and the rejection of, of their Messiah but now God's place, his holy city that will never be a sign of, of, of rejection and sin again. Notice how he describes it. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice say, uh, from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. You know, it brings about another question, and this is a question that many have asked, and, and, and again, there's two different ways that people see this. The new Jerusalem, the holy city, the description of it is like a bride being prepared for her husband. Is this the church? It, it, you know, it, 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 we are told that the church is, is the building of God. Essentially, you know, is that, is that metaphor being taken over here because it's described in the same way as the church? And there are many, you know, New Testament scholars who believe that. Many conservative New Testament scholars who believe this is just a, another way of saying that God sees his church, you know, that's already been in heaven with him and, and, and now is kind of appearing, uh, you know, uh, kind of like a bride coming down the aisle all dressed in white. The idea of being such a beautiful sight. Where others say, no, this is not meant to be the church, but it's meant to use that same kind of analogy is we all know what it's like when you see that bride, you know, coming you know, dressed in white and how everybody gazes on the bride and, and, and the groom, you know, how his, his eyes are turned toward his bride. That's kind of the picture of how God and his people will be when, when you know, the, the, the new Jerusalem comes. So those are kind of the two ways that it's interpreted. Um, let me read something to you from uh, a New American commentary and just give you kind of his take on this. 
And, and I, I really kind of agree with this. I, I, I think it is much more likely that this is, is this, just the city of God and that idea of a bride imagery is being used for that, not necessarily the church. It says, the question may be asked whether this is the same bride as in chapter 19, where the bride is clearly the church. Some think so, but the better interpretation seems to be that the new Jerusalem, the holy city of the new heavens and the new earth, is presented here through the metaphor of a, of a bride prepared for her husband, and not as being synonymous with the church in chapter 19. Pulling the metaphors together, the celestial city is the eternal home for the bride of Christ. Now, see, I love what he does here, because I think this is a much better way of, of, of understanding it. You see the city coming down, and it's that glorious moment like seeing a bride come. But at the same time, where, what's that city going to be the, the home for? The bride of Christ, the church, God's people. It will be a home for, for that. So really, in a way, the metaphors do tie together. Just not necessarily the way that sometimes we think about it. Again, not everybody agrees with that. That's, you know, it's kind of one person's way of looking at it, but I think it really kind of carries... Uh, you know, some, some kind of rhetorical power to it. It's, it's a nice way of, of, of looking at it. Um, it says, and, and notice, uh, you know, he he's, he's uses some uh, explanation of some Greek here. He says, the perfect passive participle of, of this verb, meaning prepare or make ready, he has the verb here, I'm not going to even try to pronounce it, um, but he has it here, um, it means prepare or make ready, calls to mind the promise of the Lord to his disciples. I am going there to prepare a place for you. The perfect passive participle indicates that this place, having been prepared, now descends looking like a bride prepared for her husband. Another perfect passive participle coming from uh, another Greek word, uh, I'll try this one, cosmeo, uh, means adorn, it's kind of where we get the word cosmetics from. Um, me meaning adorn is from, uh, from from which and from which evolved the English words cosmos or cosmetics, but you never knew cosmos and cosmetics came from the same word, did you? Not unless, not unless you know Greek. References the way in which the heavenly city was adorned. The reference to the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband captures the awe of the moment of the pr presentation of a bride to a groom. In the addition to the beauty of the bride, there is the uh, anticipatory union that is about to take place in the midst of the general excitement of all who are, are a part of the moment. I think that's a beautiful way of looking at it and expressing it. It will be even more glorious than that moment that happens at a wedding that we all love to see where the, you know, the bride walks down and, and, and takes the husband's hand and, and they are joined together. Uh, but that is just like just a tiny picture of what this moment will be like when God brings the new Jerusalem, his holy city, down and God's people see where their home will be with their groom, with Christ for eternity. How beautiful that moment must be. The next thing that we see really stressed here is God's dwelling with his people. Verse 3 says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now amongst his people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. 
Again, that is a, a concept that's used throughout the entirety of the scripture. You know, and again, it's one of those moments that, you know, we almost, well, no, we know almost, we need to be trained in how to think scripturally. Again, go the whole way back to the beginning. What was Eden meant to be? What was Eden meant to be? See, sometimes we get this really false idea of what Eden was. Eden was all of the earth. No, Eden wasn't all the earth, but the Bible's very specific about that. It says God planted a garden in Eden, and it even gives the location. It was a place on the earth. Why did God pick a particular place, plant this beautiful garden, and put Adam and Eve in it? So he could dwell with them. So it would be a place he could come to earth and meet with them. Isn't that what the passage says? It used to be his habit to walk with them in the cool of the evening. Eden was always meant to be a picture of where God dwelt with his people, met his people, fellowshiped with his people. And that's one of the great things that was lost through the fall. That's why you always hear me stress that the fall brought spiritual death. We think far too much about the physical death. Fall brought spiritual death. It severed that closeness between God and man. It put us at enmity with God, who meant to always dwell with us. We lost the beauty of that connection. Now, God still loved us. That's why he sent his son, to remedy all that and make that connection again. And that's what this is. In all of Scripture, what do you see when God has a special relationship he reveals with his people? You see him dwelling with his people. It happened, you know, with with Abraham, and God came down and met Abraham at the tents of Abraham and promised Abraham, you know, a, a, a covenant. It happened at the time of the deliverance of the people from Exodus, from, from the Exodus, from, from Egypt. <clears throat> what did you see God doing? Coming down and tabernacling with his people. That's what tabernacle means. It's dwelling with, a place to dwell with. That's what the Holy of Holies was, was God coming down and dwelling with his people. That's why the the imagery is so sad when God's presence leaves the temple when Jerusalem falls to the Babylonians. Because it was a sign that God had left his people to their fate and said, look, your sin is so great, you you, you need to suffer the consequences, and I am going to leave for now and let you suffer the consequences of your sin." But what do we see again in the church? We, why, you know, when the Bible says the Holy Spirit comes and indwells you, what do you think that's all about? It's God indwelling his people, God living with his people. And what are we told about heaven? What did Jesus tell the, the, the disciples? I'm going to prepare a place for you. That's the language a groom used for his bride. And he said, I'm going to make a home for us. Everything in the Bible from beginning to end has been pointing to this moment where God says, I'm going to come and dwell with my people again. That's how beautiful this moment is. It's all been heading toward this. And when he gets to that moment, look at what he says. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Again, I, I mean, I have no idea. This is just, this is just my speculation, but I, I do wonder if John was not crying at that moment. How could he not be? 
I mean, my word. I'm standing up here crying. I can't imagine what it must have been like to John. And God says, I'm going to wipe away every tear. There will be no more death. And if there's no death, there's no need for mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. God said, I'm going to make it all new. I'm going to do away with the old order of things that was ruined by sin. And I'm going to dwell with my people. I'll wipe away your tears. I'll care for your needs. You'll never die again. You'll never mourn for death again. You won't feel pain anymore. There won't be any more need to cry. Verse 5, he was seated on the throne, said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I love that. He said to John, John, make sure you write this down. These are God's words that you can count on this. In the midst of the horrible things that you experience in your life, of the lives of all the the centuries and all the people that would live until this moment takes place, God God says, I'm guaranteeing you right now this moment will happen someday. You may not live to see it, not on this earth, but you'll be resurrected again someday, and I'll guarantee you, you will see it someday. These words are trustworthy, they're true. You'll see it someday. If you are one of, of, the, of the children of God, you will see this moment. This is God giving a guarantee. Verse 6, he said, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Again, it's Edenic picture. Where was the tree of life? It was in Eden. Isn't it interesting that God, well, boy, I don't know if we got time. We don't have time to go down this path. Um, you know, I, I just want you to think for a little bit. God kicked Adam and Eve out of Eden. The, you know, many Old Testament scholars believe the key to, to not, there not being any death was the presence of the tree of life. The tree of life and, and regularly eating from the tree of life was what guaranteed that there would never be any death. But once they were in a state of sin, God was not going to let them be present with the tree of life. You know, we always think of it, well, there just would never be any death anyways, but the Bible doesn't really say that. There wouldn't be any need for a tree of life if, they, if, if that was the case, would there? That wouldn't even make sense. You know, so, so actually most Old Testament scholars, most Genesis scholars I've encountered, that's, that's their belief that, you know, that, that that's the best way to interpret it. That held off ever dying. And because of sin, God removed them. That's how death came through sin, physical death. Spiritual death came when sin existed itself. Physical death came when God said, out of Eden you go. You can't be here anymore because if you can keep eating from that tree and live forever, I have no way of ever healing your spiritual death. So that, that's how you know, many see how physical death came. That's why when God says, you know, the day you eat of it, you will surely die, he didn't mean they were going to physically die that day, he meant you spiritually died that day, and I'm going to kick you out of the place you have access to eternal life, 
physically. And now what's he say? In the midst of the new heaven and the new earth, there's going to be a, a, a spring, essentially, water of life. And I'll give it to anybody at no cost. He's just said there will never be any death anymore. I will give without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this. And I will be their God and they will be my children. You know, and, and remember we talked about this probably two years ago <laughs> when, when we were talking about the letters to the churches. You know, that idea of, of the victorious in Christ, what does it mean to be victorious in Christ? Does it mean like, you know, I'm, I'm you know, some big powerful Christian and I win victory by myself. Being victorious in Christ means you understand that you can have no victory on your own. And you put your faith in Christ who's the only place you can find victory. That's victory in Christ. That's the overcomers that, that we saw the phrase used, the overcomers in, in, in the early parts of, of this book. That's what it meant to be an overcomer. Put your faith in Christ. You, you know, we can't pick that whole pick yourself up by your bootstraps Christianity and just tough it out. That's nonsense. Yeah, there are no spiritual superheroes. Only Jesus Christ. If you can't humbly put your faith in him and each day put your trust in him for how you're going to live that life, what, is the, what did Jesus say to his disciples? Without me, you can do nothing. I am the vine, you are the branches. The power you have to live your life for me comes through me. So you better get connected to the vine and put all your faith in the vine because we don't have the power to live this life for Christ on our own. We just don't. And here we see that same imagery. The victorious, those who drink from the, the waters of life, the, those who, who have all of this, he says they will, be, they will inherit this all and they will, I will be their God, they will be my children. God dwelling with his people. Then in verse 80 kind of gives a, a list of, 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 of all, yeah, who won't be there essentially. It says, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magical arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Again, let me read a quote here from the New American Commentary. says, these observations, however, lead to one of the last warnings of the apocalypse. While all of these exquisite blessings come to the one who is overcome by the blood of the Lamb, there is another class of people turned into the lake of fire, which is the second death. The list provided in verse 8, though not intended to be definitive. In other words, it, it doesn't cover all the sins. It's just meant as a, a, you know, a listing of sins. Uh, you know, people who are essentially defined by sin. Though not intended to be definitive, is certainly representative. Those enumerated are the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, all who practice magical arts, uh, the idolaters, and all liars. The list once again provides a general overall look at the natures of those who deny the Lord. Many people, when they... Yeah, and there's many of these verses in the Bible, many of these lists. 
And a lot of times when people read them, they go, oh my gosh, I lied one time. I committed a sexual sin. I, I cheated. I, I did whatever. You know, every one of us is somewhere on that list somewhere. It, it, it's what he's not, he's not saying, look, if you've ever done any of these things, man, you're going to go to hell. Everybody is going to go to hell without Christ. Everybody, because it's not possible for anyone to not sin. That's what the sin nature is. It means that everybody by nature is a sinner. So whatever, that's why he said the list isn't that exhaustive. It doesn't cover every sin. It's just meant to show, look, people who by, by nature are sinners are not going to enter into, into heaven. But the ones who've overcome through Jesus Christ will. Because that's what Christ did. He died for our sins. He died to overcome the sin nature that's in us. It's another way, essentially, of saying those who put their faith in Jesus Christ are going to inherit all these things. Isn't that what he just said in verse 7? They're going to inherit all those things, but the ones who didn't won't. The ones whose lives are characterized by their very nature, their sin nature they have, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Look at, look at how, you know, kind of vast that, you know, that list is. You know, the, the cowardly, the you know, murderers. We, you know, you're sure, we all get murders. Sexually immoral. I mean, we can get that to a certain degree, but what does Jesus say about that? Anyone that's looked on another and, and lusted after them. I guarantee you, folks, that's everybody in this room don't lie to yourself. I mean, that's every one of us. I guarantee it's me. That's every single one of us. You know, we, none of us get out of this. Sure, I, you know, practicing magical arts, we've never done that. Idolaters, okay, yeah, we've never done that. What about liars? I love how he throws that one in there at the end, and he says, all liars. That pretty much shoots the hole in our defenses, doesn't it? Also gives you an idea of kind of what God thinks about telling the truth, how important that is to God. But yeah, none of us get out of this alive. If it wouldn't be for Jesus Christ, none of us would be going to that beautiful new Jerusalem. But through Jesus Christ through the shedding of his blood and our faith in what he's done for us, that is how you overcome. That is how you are victorious through what Christ has done. Have you put your faith in Christ? That's the question. That's, that's what this moment is meant to be. It is the separation between those who have not and those who have. So there's one final warning you know, much of what the message of Revelation is, is a warning to the people who hear it. Have you put your faith in Christ? This book is meant to be partially evangelistic. Yes, it's meant to be hope for God's people, but it's also meant to be evangelistic. It's meant to say that only one way out of this, and that's Jesus Christ. Have you put your faith in? All right. Next week, I want you to read the rest of chapter 21. 
We're going to cover as much of it as we can. At this point, he begins to describe, uh, you know, the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, the, the city, um, you know, it, it, and it, it's an amazing description. Yeah, I don't know how far we're going to get, but read the rest of it. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, just re, re, you know, read from verse 9, uh, you know, through verse 27, and we'll cover as much as we can cover next week, and, and if we don't get it done, we'll end it the week after that, and then we come to the last chapter of the book after that. Bet you never thought that was going to come, did you? <laughs> All right, let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day, Lord. I, I thank you. Again, Lord, I thank you for your mercy, for your grace. That you love us so much despite the, the horrible sin that we commit, the Despite my sins, Father, as I think about this personally, despite all of that, you love us. You sent your son to die for us, and, and you want us to be your people, and you want to dwell with us, and you want to make us into the image of your son. You love us so much. We, we so rarely live like we understand that, Father, and I just pray that you would just to be even more gracious and just uh, help us to live in that way that, that says we understand just how much you've given us, that we appreciate what you've done. Father, we love you. Help us to, to lift up our worship to you today, to learn more about you, commit ourselves more to you, and we pray that you would be pleased. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.